And the kind of point of this series is to bring different perspectives to the idea of object-based research and study and passion. Um, so just to get started, it'd be great if you could define your own practice. Uh, I write um, pretty much exclusively now in the first person. So I write um, a film column for Empire. I write a beauty column for The Guardian, and I've done that for eight years. Um, I write books. The first two are on beauty, the third one is not. Um, I write a weekly opinion column for The Pool, which is a large platform uh, for women online. Um, and then various other things for newspapers and glossies. And I have never, um, as an adult, done any other job. <laughs> so um, I've been a journalist um, for pretty much all of my adult life. Uh, and prior to that, I was an assistant makeup artist. For days, a really big part of my job is event hosting. I do loads of that, and I do tons of radio as well. Um, journalism, if there's anybody here studying journalism, they'll be more than aware journalism doesn't really look the same anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, um, whereas I used to just sit in my kitchen and write all the time, now um, I write, present, record, do podcasts, do lots of broadcasting, do some television, and it's all kind of mixed in together. Yeah. It's much more now about the voice that you have rather than the medium you use. Yeah, absolutely. So the running theme through everything you've done seems to be communication. Um, yes. Yeah, and yeah, and voice and opinion um, and taking a viewpoint. Um, I suppose most of the things I write about um, are would be classed quite patronisingly as women's issues. Um, lots of fashion, lots of beauty, lots of lifestyle, lots of feminism, lots of politics with a feminist slant, um, that sort of thing. But yes, everything now is pretty much written in the first person. Mm -hmm. So as you develop as a journalist, as you get older, um, it's not really fair as, as you develop as a journalist. When you first start, you, your job is much harder. So you tend to write in the third person. You have to gather lots of data and lots of interviews and stats and research together to create this feature. But as you get older and much better at what you do, your job becomes easier because mm. you just sort of do brain sick on the brain. <laughs> And so what I do now is basically just what I think about things, whereas in the past I would have to be more yeah. comprehensive. I think that's also because people have grown to trust your voice and they're looking for your particular opinion rather than it being that you are a vessel through which they learn about a wider subject. Yeah, and it's important discipline that you learn to do it the other way. Um, but yes, as you get older, people, if people like your voice and keep reading your voice, then, then you start speaking as yourself and expressing your views and it's it's worked out well so I'm very grateful yeah so keeping on that strand of, uh, of opinion I've noticed in uh, your writings about fashion or your opinion on fashion um, it seems to be that you've got an idea or an attachment to style by association like I read something about your uh, love of Madonna and how she was a big um, inspiration for you and there was a phrase that I really liked about uh, how she utilized fashion um, and that was what made you think her clothes were in le almost less than the garments itself. It, it was more the personality that she conveyed. Yeah, um, uh, Madonna was a huge influence in loads of ways. I genuinely, so I'm 42, I'm going to be 43 next month. And 
I personally believe, and I've written many columns on this subject, I personally believe that um, many women of my generation absolutely wouldn't have done what they did or wouldn't have been able to do what they did had it not been for Madonna. I feel really, really lucky to have grown up in a time where an icon that children will learn about at school was of my time. You know, I missed the Beatles, I missed Elvis, <laughs> but I got Madonna and Prince and Bowie. Um, so, I, so I feel incredibly lucky about that. But I, I think with Madonna's style, Yes, of course, I copied it as a child, not as an adult, but as a child, I really did. But for me, it was more about agency. It was more about um, she didn't really dress for men. She didn't really dress to be found attractive by men. It, there was such agency and independence involved in her look that I found that really inspiring. And I can't... It really influenced my personal style in that genuinely... And I'm making no qualitative judgment whatsoever on what other people do to attract the opposite sex or to attract the same sex. Um, I genuinely can't remember ever wearing makeup or dressing to attract men. Mm. I, and I'm a heterosexual woman, and of course, if I fancy a man, I want him to fancy me back. It's not that. But I just can't remember ever dressing for anyone else. Mm -hmm. And that is something you feel you partly learned from Madonna, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, that's an inspiration. Yes, absolutely. Point. And lots of women, yeah. you know, lots of women. And it set a particular tone. Debbie Harry and Grace Jones, and like the, the women that I grew up with, they just, they seemed to just do what they wanted, and, and yeah. that was really inspiring. Yeah, fantastic. So you've listed a few different inspiration points there, and those are women who you've maybe kept as an inspiration throughout your life and career. Um, I'm curious about other kind of habits. Is there anything that you collect, either professionally or personally? Yes, yeah. So I'm, um, Oh, there's quite a lot going on there. I think, like, I, I'm I'm an extremely nerdy person, and um, I have always been extremely nerdy about fashion and beauty. And so, I collect fashion magazines. Um, I collect shoots from fashion magazines. I um, find I become very sentimentally attached to objects. Really, really bad but to a point where it's actually quite disturbing to others. So, <laughs> so like I would, um, oh, it's so embarrassing. I hadn't planned on saying this, but um, so I was chopping carrots the other night and I put the end of the carrot in the bin and I immediately had to chop the next one off to put it in the bin so he had a friend. <laughs> like, it's mental. And, uh, my, and my husband uh, thinks I'm insane for doing it, but I, but I attach feelings and mm. sentiment to objects and I'm not a spiritual person I'm sure. I'm an atheist I don't believe in ghosts I'm really not that kind of person but with objects they are so pregnant for me with memories and meaning and yeah. significance that's brilliant I, I, yeah because I had wondered whether to ask you or not um I've noticed as a running theme in your writing you personifying things um for instance I think with Max Factor's cream puff uh, foundation, you described it as the grand dowager of uh, beauty, yeah. and I was interested in that kind of personality-driven. Do you think that's a passion for your subject, and that it runs across, or do you think that's that uh, part of your own personality? Um, I, I, I do, I do it with everything, and I try. I do think objects have personality, and partly why um, I wrote my 
uh, second book, Pretty Iconic. So Pretty Iconic looks at toiletries and beauty products that change the world, whether they change my life personally or the world at large. The reason I wrote that book is because I was flicking through Glossy magazine and I saw yet another one of those features where they got four posh women to model a thing that they'd inherited from their mum, like an heirloom from their mum. And there was somebody in like an Aussie Clark dress and somebody in like a Chanel suit. And they were talking about how um, evocative those things were of their childhood. And I just thought, I cannot read another one of these things where people act as though it's normal to mm. inherit a Chanel suit or an yeah. Aussie Clark dress. <laughs> it's like, it's not. It's not. The things that remind me of my childhood are Mr. Matey and Olive Yule mm. and Vosine Shampoo. I don't come from a rich family where people had Chanel suits. And for me, those objects have every bit the resonance an old bottle of Mr. Matey has every bit the resonance of an old Chanel suit for me. Yeah. Um, because they are the objects I saw when I was growing up. They were the kind of soundtrack to my life. And I wanted those objects, those quotidian, unsexy, unglamorous, everyday objects to be given some respect mm. and, and some reverence in our history as people, because they really matter to me. They really matter to me. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I really loved about Pretty Iconic. And when I was prepping for tonight, I really thought I'm going to be preaching to the converted on the kind of importance and symbolism of objects. Because the, the book does a really good job of kind of looking at the cultural, but also the personal history of those pieces. Um, and there's a description that you kind of open the book with about a toolbox that I really, really love, about your B&Q toolbox tucked away in your attic that has particular pieces that you've kind of kept. Did you consciously collect those different items yes. of beauty pieces? Yes, I consciously collect. So um, if so, what happened was my publisher was saying, what are you going to write next? And I didn't have an idea. And then... Uh, one day, my then boyfriend came into the bedroom and he said, Jesus Christ, can we just clear out the loft? I've been up there. There's loads of old makeup up there and products and clothes and the products must have gone off at this point. They can't possibly ever be of any use. And I said, no, you can't. You can't throw those away because they're my beauty mixtape. Mm. That's like... Those are the things where even if they've gone off, I can pick them up and I can remember the party I was at, I can remember who I was snogging, <laughs> I can remember what I was dancing to, what I was wearing, who I was hanging out with. Um, they are too important to me. And the, and the same with clothes and, and objects generally. I find it very, very hard to let go of those things because to me, they're like photo albums. Mm. And so I thought maybe it's a book. And before I knew it, within about half an hour, I'd written about 200 products that really mattered to me. Yeah. Um, and it ended up being a list of about 350 that I had to cut down. But they really, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're the sort of markers of my life. And I can always, you know, when people hear a record and they go, oh, I remember dancing to this at a club. I remember the lipstick I was wearing, the clothes I was wearing. Mm. I have quite a photographic memory in that way. And all those objects make up that picture for me. Yeah. And it sounds like you also, you almost caught that connection because there's some descriptions in both of your books about certain products that you associate with particular feelings and therefore you deliberately choose them. So for instance, I think you called Chanel number no. five your backbone or something. Yeah, yeah Chanel number no. five is really important. It's, um, 
I mean, it sounds terrible saying, oh, Chanel number no. five is my favourite perfume, because it's like saying the Beatles are my favourite band or Citizen <laughs> Kane's my favourite film. It sounds so route one. But sometimes things are known as the best because they literally are the best. Mm. And Chanel number no. five, I think, is the best perfume ever. And for me, I've had such a long relationship with it. I'm wearing it now. I probably only wear it twice a month. I wear perfume every day. I probably only wear number no. five about twice a month. But when I really need... So, like, when I had to go to my dad's funeral or if I've got some huge presentation I have to give, or if I just need to be on my game, I will reach for Chanel number no. five because I always feel that if things are a bit awry or if things are moving fast, it's such a steady presence in my life. I feel like it settles me. I know exactly who I am in number no. five. I, I know what I'm doing. And yeah, for me, it is a sort of backbone in a bottle. I, I, I know exactly what to expect. It knows me and I know it. <laughs> That's gorgeous. I really like that personal connection, not only to an object and project, but kind of to the smell and the sensory experience perfumes, of it. I mean, perfume's the most evocative of, yeah. of, of anything, I think. Yeah, can kind of, the transporting quality of yeah. an object. So that's kind of linked back to your earlier uh, things that you said about the personal voice. But in the book as well, you give a cultural history and, and kind of individual backgrounds on particular products, um, whether it's a whole group, such as false eyelashes, or whether it's an individual make or brand. I was quite curious about how you researched that. Um, Okay, so tons, because it was quite a personal book, tons and tons of the research was just in my head. It was just my own stuff. Um, occasionally, I needed a date or um, uh, a, the name of the scientist or something, and then I researched it. I did, at the beginning of the book, approach 200 or so brands and said I'd chosen them to be in the book. Could they help me with any archive stuff? They were really useless, I have to say. They weren't, um, they weren't anything like as engaged in the process as I had been expecting. Some were. They tended to be kind of heritage houses. So Chanel and Estee Lauder, for example, they look after their assets, yeah. they value their heritage, and so they tended to, to, be, to have more stuff at their mm -hmm. fingertips and more engaged with it. So, for example, Estee Lauder um, have... Um, an archive building that has every compact they've ever made and things like that, which is obviously for me just porn. Like, <laughs> it, for me, it's just the most incredible thing. Um, whereas some of the brands, some of the kind of American brands, not Lauder, but some of the other, they just didn't really seem to care. Then Revlon were brilliant. There were some exceptions, but there were some absolute stinkers where I, I, I lost my temper with a couple and that's it, where I just said, well, I'm not asking your permission to, for you to be in the book. Mm. You, you are going in the book, so you can either help me or not help me. And yeah. lots of them didn't. That's, that's really intriguing, because I find from a fashion They were quick to Instagram the book when it came yeah, out. I was going to say. They were so happy yeah. to be in this book. Well, <laughs> yeah, that helpful. Yeah. That's really intriguing. I can imagine. I think that's probably because they're looking ahead to their next product. Whereas I find um, working from a fashion history perspective, if I'm curating an exhibition, the majority of brands are excited to be a part of it. One because it's a publicity opportunity, and two because it's almost like prowess by association because you're being picked for something. Right. I well, so completely that. that what you're talking about. So there's one brand that um, I contacted and said I want to put in 
A and B, were one of these two products, one of these two extremely iconic products. And they said, oh no, we're not actually focusing on those products at the moment. It's like, Ooh. it's a book about icon. Yeah. And also, it's a book, it's not a magazine that's out for a month and then yeah. goes in a skip. It's a book, it's forever. Mm. You really should look at the bigger picture here, yeah. heels. And, um, <laughs> and they didn't, um, they didn't want to be in it unless they could talk about their new product. And I just thought that was so sad. Yeah, so I get really upset about, if you look at Reeve Gauche, for example, by YSL, it's the most brilliant perfume. It's so important. It's so important from a historical standpoint. So important now. It's such a modern uh, perfume, even though it was released in the 60s. And YSL act like it's nothing. And I get that they, they act like it's a dirty secret. They're totally, they, they either ignore it or seem faintly embarrassed by it. And it makes me really cross because I think it's special and I genuinely start feeling sorry for it because <laughs> I think it's really important. And then I get angry with the newer perfumes. Like, it is quite a mad thought process, but this is how I get about objects. Yeah. I feel protective of them. Yeah. <laughs> Even when it's in the professional research, guys, you're still fighting the corner. Yes, the absolutely. Yeah, really cross. It's like, well, creme de corps is the iconic product. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what you want to talk about. <laughs> So as a final point before we move on to your objects about um, kind of other objects that you end up promoting or working with, um, I was curious, keeping on that idea of the toolbox, um, you described that as a time capsule and I was thinking actually a person's makeup bag or in your in the bathroom series, what they have hidden in their bathroom is kind of an, uh, a time capsule that's still in active service. Um, so what those people have hidden away, you're encouraging them to use something in everyday life um, rather than preserving it mm -hmm. and you talk a lot um, I've noticed about kind of mm, not waiting until something's gone to appreciate it so particularly with heritage brands protecting as you said those kind of long lost products that the brand is now ignoring keeping on buying those to kind of keep that relationship alive. Yes so we, even though I'm very very uh, sentimental and protective of products people might expect me then to want to keep them in a cabinet, but I actually think that's a really disrespectful thing to do. I think if you love things, you should use them. Mm -hmm. And I think if you value things, you should buy them and treasure them. What I hate, and this is a really British thing, I have to say, is you say, buy your mother a Jo Malone body cream, say, and four years later, it's still in the guest bathroom yeah. and it stinks because it's <laughs> gone off. I think not only do objects deserve to be used for their purpose, but also you deserve to live well now. Yeah. And I think, I think this thing that British people have of thinking, I'll save it for best, I'll save it for a life that may never come. Mm. I just think you deserve to live well now. I think it's psychologically a really bad thing to say to yourself, um, to say, I don't deserve it today, I deserve it on a special occasion. Yeah, to today is a special occasion. Trump's definitely going to kill us soon. So, yeah. <laughs> like, so, so today is a special occasion. And so I think wear the, wear the lovely jumper mm. on the school run. I think get the lovely plates out and eat eggs out of them. Use the nice stuff. Wear the shoes you love. I hate, hate, hate save for best. Mm. I hate it. I think it's a really psychologically worrying thing. And you're not honoring your objects. 
Yeah, honoring your objects, that's a great phrase. I would say it's about putting trust in the quality of your objects, as we were talking before we that's came so out. That's so true, yeah. Um, about vintage and how if you buy a piece that's already lasted 50 years before you've got your hands on it, then that's a vote of confidence in that item that has the quality to kind yeah. of withstand. And, and they have a you. function, you know, a beautiful plate is meant to have a bowl of pasta in it, yeah. not meant to be in a cupboard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. not just for decorative pieces. So that's it, so you're interested in objects, but they're objects of the everyday, and you want to give them additional love yeah. and appreciation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think if you have something beautiful, you should enjoy it yeah. and not hide it. You deserve it now. Fantastic. I think that's a great uh, note to move on to the next section where we're going to talk about your object. So. Uh, my object is not beautiful, despite <laughs> everything I've just said. It looks so crap. I've got, I am somebody who's lucky enough to own lots of fancy clothes, and my husband thought, he was like, oh, what will you take, a Chanel handbag or, you know, a Gucci blouse or whatever? I was like, no, I am taking this. So this is mini, like, skater, peplum, zip-up jacket thing, and it's from Pineapple on the King's Road, and it was bought for me in, uh, I think, 1988, and the reason I will never throw it away, I don't wear it anymore, um, I used to wear it with, um, there the were matching leggings that I bought at the same time um, that were also navy blue lycra, because it's got an open front. Um, and I used to wear it with DMs and leggings, and the leggings have long gone because they got a hole in the seam. But this will never be thrown away, and the reason it will never be thrown away is because it was bought for me by Lee Bowery. Oh, wow. And uh, so I was 13-ish, um, and I came to London to stay with my uncle, who was a very close friend of Lee Bowery and Michael Clark's, and they were all working together at the time. They were doing a club together. And they were all staying in his flat in Kentish Town. And one day, um, they just said, should we go shopping? And obviously, I was really young and overwhelmed with excitement at this. So we went to the King's Road, which is my worst place, actually, in London. I hate Chelsea. It's the only place in London I can't go to. I loathe Chelsea but on the, and Knightsbridge, that whole area. But on that day, we went to King's Road for whatever reason. And pineapple was there. And at that time, pineapple was a really important mm. thing from a fashion perspective. So these days, they just sell dancewear. In those days, they sold actual clothes that mm. people wanted to you know, wear out. And it was a tiny little store, the King's Road one. And Lee Bowery was wearing this um, mad kind of brocade frock coat and character shoes and tights. And... Michael Clark had this McDonald's hamburger backpack <laughs> way before Moschino did it. It was a genuine staff, <laughs> like McDonald's. He probably, Moschino probably ripped it off. Anyway. Um, and he had um, a body map. Uh, no, no, he had a Vivian Westwood uh, pirate long sleeve T-shirt on and some bondage trousers <laughs> and stuff. And Eugenie, my um, uncle's girlfriend, Eugenie Vincent, she was a big model at the time, was wearing something insane also. And I was just wearing uh, Levi 501s and Dr. Martins as mm -hmm. I did all the time in those days. So we went into the shop and Lee Barry said to me, um, let's get you an outfit to stop traffic in. <laughs> I'll never ever forget that. I just thought it was the best thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> and so we went upstairs and they chose this for me. And I wore it all of the time mm -hmm. for the next two years probably i just wore it to everything i felt a million dollars in it and i had um, a navy blue bowler hat for miss selfridge that i would wear with it 
and I would wear um, Dr. Martin's shoes that had like ribbons instead of laces. And I wore it, and red lipstick always, and I just wore it everywhere. I felt the absolute nuts in it. <laughs> and um, I, it has such resonance for me. And it was my London outfit. Mm. It was my London fashionable outfit when I went back to Wales. Um, I'm from the Valleys, and when I moved to London, not long after, maybe about 18 months after, I knew I had an outfit yeah. that I could go and do things in and that I would fit in and that I would look yeah. nice. And so, and that's how I got my break, being in that world and being around all those people. I would go to clubs and stuff, and I would meet interesting people, and I was in... Um, Fred's in Soho, which is gone now, but there was a bar called Fred's on Carlisle Street. And I was in there one night. I wasn't wearing this. I was wearing a Michiko Kashino, another designer of the past. I was wearing a Michiko Kashino see-through um, black fishnet top. I looked totally jailbaity and like, inappropriate. And hot pants and fishnet tights. It, it, that's what was happening at the time. Berets, chokers. It was a Dolce & Gabbana, Ellen von Unworth moment. And um, I was in Fred's, and I was introduced to this makeup artist called Lynn Easton, who was a very big makeup artist at the time, and she offered me a job as her assistant. Mm -hmm. And that's how I was able to make ends meet mm -hmm. until I became a journalist. So it's partly a token of the kind of initial connection and time in London, but it's also to those personalities. Do you think that you felt so fantastic in it because it was part of that scene and because it was something you wouldn't have been able to wear back home or because Lee had given you that kind of vote of confidence in you wearing something? Well, all of that. I could wear it back home. I did wear it back home, but I couldn't have bought it back home yeah. because I used to come to London to go to Hyper Hyper and Pineapple and all those and Kensington Market and all those sorts of shops. So I couldn't buy it back home. Plus, an actual fashion icon yeah. had um, bought it for me, mm. and that obviously made me feel great. And it was also just as kind of window. So that night, so the first place I wore it, there was a thing at the V&A um, about surrealism, fashion and surrealism, and there was a party that night, and that, that's why we went. I forgot that bit. That's why we went, so I could wear it to this fashion and surrealism party at the V&A, the opening, the exhibition. And Stephen Jones was there, and Vivian Westwood was there, and I met all these people in this In this dress, yeah. yeah. So it's your yeah. kind of awakening to that, that world. Yeah, and Rita Osbeck was there, I remember. <laughs> all these people of the time, I was so excited. And so I felt... I felt accepted in it. I felt yeah. as though I fitted in. You'd been initiated. Yeah, in yeah. And I had the approval and yeah. yeah. That's interesting actually because I was going to say um, the I, I love that phrase that he said. Let's stop traffic because yeah. um, I went. And it wasn't sexual. It wasn't. No, you it know, was, it wasn't. Let's make you look sexy. Yeah. It was just like let's get you. It an was outfit pure to expression. Yeah. yeah, pure expression, pure impact. I yeah. actually I worked on an exhibition at the V&A about. Um, that kind of club scene and we did a lot of oral histories to do with Lee Bowery and um, his local cab company who used to call to pick him up to take him to Blitz yeah. um, they used to always send the new boy in the taxi and <laughs> just because, have just and Lee, yeah exactly yeah. and the initiation was Lee getting ready in the car and kind of yeah. that, setting that tone for you yeah. so the idea of stopping traffic was probably quite literal in yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and also what a brilliant thing to say to a yeah, 13 year old girl yeah. you know what a brilliant thing to say Let's Absolutely. get you an outfit to stop trafficking. I just felt really powerful. Yeah, from here on in, it's going to be yeah. a confident world. Yeah. That's really, really gorgeous. And also the idea of it being pineapple. I wouldn't necessarily associate that brand with that world as well. I think that's quite interesting. Now, you know, at the time, actually, mm. lots and lots and lots of people wore pineapples. So, um, 
you know, uh, Boy London. Mm. It was Boy London and Pineapple. Lots of people wore club wear from there. So everyone used to wear lycra bodies with everything and lycra hot pants and lycra frocks and, and Pam Hogg and those sort of, and, and Pineapple's kind of in that world. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also got, uh, kind of following back to some things you earlier said, but also um, this idea of confidence. It's also got a great woman behind it with yeah. Demi Moore. And yeah. hers, her kind of uh, message continues to be about kind of body positivity and yeah. energy for women. Yeah. Um, so that's an extra kind of strand. To yeah, it was, it was a really big deal in those days, pineapple. I mean, it was mega expensive. I think this, I think this, I didn't pay for it, they did, but mm. I think this was like £40. Mm. And the leggings were like £20, which at that time, you would, you know, leggings would be seven pounds somewhere else. Yeah. And this would be, you know, fifteen in yeah. warehouse or somewhere. Yeah. So was there, was there, if you don't mind me asking, like a conscious point at which it became a preserved kind of talisman and object rather than something that was in your active wardrobe? I think I stopped wearing it. The leggings split. I literally just couldn't wear the leggings anymore. <laughs> and I think I tried to replace the leggings with leggings from somewhere else and the navy wasn't right or the waistband wasn't right. Something wasn't right. And so it stopped being an outfit. And I think then it kind of got archived and it went in the loft and I found it a few years ago and felt genuinely tearful. Mm. Yeah, from yeah. that association. Yeah, I've got loads of stuff from that period though. I've got loads of body map and... Um, like little Vivian Westwood t-shirts mm -hmm. I used to wear and market things. Fantastic. And uh, would you say your association with those objects is largely a personal one or does it bleed through to the professional life? You know, you just described how through these parties and this scene you were meeting all these people. Um, at what point do they become almost a professional uniform or part of your identity as you're a burgeoning writer? Um, I can't separate them because yeah. I'm a workaholic and I've only <laughs> ever done, um, I definitely work too much and I've only ever really worked in one world and um, I honestly thought when I was young that I, if I didn't get to be a journalist, I would um, work in this world and in London that I actually thought I would die if I didn't get to do it. Mm. And so I, I feel completely defined I can't separate myself and my work, I literally can't. Yeah, so you described earlier how you have quite a visual memory and an imagination. Was when you're you know, describing those extreme feelings, was it because you were picturing a scene, an outfit, a moment? Yeah, and you know, and, and parties I went to in Wales in it, and I remember wearing this one time in um, a club called the Cedar Tree. It was an absolute hole, to be honest, <laughs> in, in the valleys, and I was wearing my Miss Selfridge bowler hat, and if you were under... 18 you had to leave at 11 o'clock and I remember um, a, a boy a, a friend kissing me to cover my face so I wouldn't get thrown out and the bowler hat going like that so, so like you couldn't see that I was too young to stay excellent tactic and it, loads loads of memories loads of memories associated with it and um yeah, it's really important. I know it looks like nothing, but it is. It's really no, it's important to me. And did it, was it a, a changing kind of chime in your own personal style? Was this the one-off piece? Was it almost, you know, your, sounds cheesy, but your superhero outfit? Or did your personal style change as a result of that one purchase being chosen for you? Uh, no, I think I've always known um, how to dress, which isn't me boasting and saying I'm a wonderful dresser. When I say I know how to dress, I know myself. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, other people may think I wear horrible things, but but I know how to dress for myself, and I've always had that instinct. 
and I don't really understand what people are talking about when they say they don't know what to wear, I don't get it. My friend Deborah um, always says to me, I don't know how to put together outfits, and I, I just never understood. And I would say, well, just put, just that goes with that, and that goes, or just put together an outfit. And she said, how do you feel if you open a piece of flat pack furniture? I said, well, I don't know how to do it, and she said, clothes to me are flat pack furniture. She said, I can build any piece of furniture, but when I see clothes, I feel the way you do when you see a piece of flat pack furniture, and then it made sense to me. <laughs> Brains work in different ways, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So do you think your kind of visual brain, visual memory spreads from fashion to beauty, and it's, it's about creating a full image, and that's why both chime with you? Yeah, they're inextricably linked, and I, and I believe in the escapism of them, and I believe in the creativity of them. And what I will say about my parents, I've, I come from quite an unconventional family, and we're, you know, and they were strange parents in many ways. But one of the things I would really say that my parents gave me that lots of my girlfriends and male friends actually now tell me that they didn't have, which I do think is really powerful, my parents never, ever, ever told me what to wear. They never criticized what I wore. They didn't try to interfere. They didn't stop me from experimenting. They didn't put their own shit about what they felt about clothes and makeup and hair onto me. Mm -hmm. They just let me do it. And at the same time, they never criticized themselves. And my mother didn't talk about her weight at all. Mm -hmm. She never talked about dieting the way I know lots of mums do. She didn't say, oh, I'm getting wrinkles. Or she didn't criticize her appearance. And I think growing up, a, never having my appearance criticised. They didn't praise me either. They didn't comment on it. They didn't yeah. think it was their business. It was a non-issue. So not having my appearance criticised and not hearing my parents criticise their own appearance, mm. I think those two things together were really powerful for me and gave me such a healthy, happy, constructive relationship with fashion and beauty that's been really important mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, that's something I wanted to comment on later, actually. I, I'm going to steal that phrase of the constructive relationship, because I've noticed whether your pieces are on social commentary or observation or whether they're more trend-based, that you're not, uh, you're very much making it clear you're speaking from your personal perspective and that you're not dictating um, no. and that you're letting the Hate reader that. make their decision. Do you think that has come from that upbringing? Um, yes, I think it has come from that. So uh, very often when I meet people, that I haven't met before, they say, oh, don't look at my hair, don't, you know, don't look at my makeup, or they say, oh, I spent hours doing my makeup because I knew I was going to see you and I didn't want you to think, oh, what does she look like? I'm always quite shocked because I would never, I never think that. Mm. I genuinely never think that. And so if I, or sometimes I'll be asked to go on TV and say, oh, can you say how, why do girls wear so much fake tan these days? Or why do women <laughs> do this? Or can you look at, can you talk about celebrity pictures and how overmade up they are? And I'm just like, no, mm. get, no, get out of people's faces. Just yeah. let people do what they want to do. I, you know, I just think you should have autonomy over how you look and whatever you want to do is just fine with me. I don't have to do it. <laughs> I think it's fine. Yeah. And it's good. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> and that links back perfectly to the kind of DIY self-expression scene that this dress let you be a part of and let you experience, actually. That was the, yeah. very much the mood of that moment. Yeah, and one of the things I hated most about living at home at the time I lived at home was I really hated the, mm, what does she look like as people went past? I don't like that kind of village mentality as it was then of, oh, she looks a bit different. He's doing something a bit different. Mm. 
I really hated that. And so London for me was a really important thing. I just needed to get to London where nobody cared. And I still don't care. Like, in fact, I feel joy. If I see someone walk past that looks strange, I feel joy, especially if it's a young person, because I worry that young people look too similar now. Um, like, when was the last time you saw a teenage girl with a bob? <laughs> They've all got long hair. Yeah. Like, all of them have got long hair. And so if I, see, if I see a young girl with a bob or short hair or shaved hair, I'm just, I feel overjoyed. Yeah. You know, You're I looking love for the risk takers. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's probably led by your own experience of throwing yourself into a, a pretty extreme but experimental situation and having this drive um, for the particular career and output that you had in mind. Yeah, yeah, good to be different. I think as well, if you've grow grown up feeling a bit other, a bit mm. odd one out, as many of us have, lots of people in, in our industry have, then you crave that, you crave something that celebrates difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was actually the kind of uh, manifesto of, of Lee's World and Club Nights, I think. So, yeah. We're talking about being different avant garde when I'm dressed literally as Miss Jean Brodie, but, <laughs> but I have my moment. I'm a bit more avant garde. Uh, absolutely. You're in person at that point. Um, so, thank you very much. That was really interesting and an unexpected choice. I always try to kind of imagine or predict what someone might bring, and I thought perhaps maybe one of your um, one, your recent wedding dresses. Congratulations! By oh, the I didn't wife. think of that. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's fantastic because it brings it to a different point in your life and in your career. Because I feel like, um, as you've just commented, how your writing in style a fire, changed. I would yeah. save that before my wedding dress. Would you? Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah. So that again proves yeah. the point of the everyday perhaps being an underestimated priority. Yeah. So it tends to be pieces like this that don't survive. Everyone keeps their wedding dress. I, I have to say as a fashion curator, and I don't mean this as any sort of criticism or offensive, I'm sure your wedding dresses are all lovely, but I get offered ten a penny because it's, it's the piece that people keep. Whereas an item that has been worn and enjoyed and was part of a working life or a social life. Much more important. It'll be worn to pieces, it'll be passed down. or it'll Also, I don't think you feel the same about clothes when you've got some money. That's the other yeah. thing. <laughs> I just think they matter when you've got nothing more. Um, if, I, if my wedding dress got burned in a fire, I could go to the vampire's wife and I could get them to make a new one and it would cost a lot of money, but it would be fine. Or I could just not get it and think I've had my fun with it. Mm -hmm. But this, I can't replace. Yeah, and that's because of the experience that you were able to have and in it. at the time, this was the most amazing thing I'd ever owned in my life. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I don't feel that way about a vampire's wife dress, much as I love it. it yeah. You know, it's not the most amazing thing in my life because my priorities are different, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't mark the changing in the tides of your kind of yeah. personal experience. Fantastic. So if it's all right, we'll now move on to talking more about kind of the personal perspective that you mm. offer in your work and your writing. So first of all, I was interested in the idea that with your work, whether it's on your own website, whether it's with your Guardian column, um, you have to literally put your best face forward because you are the face of your brand and you're kind of... Um, your perspective and as we've already noted like people are increasingly coming to hear your own voice and I've also noticed that you're doing more and more broadcasting particularly radio but you were on a program on the BBC last week um, are you kind of consciously engaging with your audience in different mediums and and you know actually using your voice as well as the written word um, when uh, well first of all you just the industry has changed so much now. You can either sit and moan that it's not the same anymore, or you can engage. And I would always rather be involved than not involved. Mm -hmm. I would just get 
FOMO, if other people were doing interesting things than I wasn't. And then, um, but it happened quite organically. There were just various funny little things that happened. So when I started that column on The Guardian, um, they wanted videos initially with the column. And so I started making videos for that. I hadn't planned to, and those did well. And then I had an idea for um, in the bathroom because mm. I was in, I was in a ladies' loo, and I was having a pee, and I could hear um, some women at the basins talking um, about someone's mother. And then there were so they were quite they, they were white women in their forties, and they were talking about someone's dying mum. And then the other side of the bathroom, there were uh, three women of colour who were younger, they were kind of in their 20s, and they were having a really interesting conversation about a bloke they knew. And I could hear these conversations in stereo, and I came out and thought, this is where the good stuff happens, mm. in the bathroom, because there's an intimacy. Yeah. Um, and there's a trust. Yeah. There's a privacy and an intimacy and a trust, and I thought that would make a good interview series. And because I didn't want anyone else to own that, I had to start a YouTube channel because I didn't want to run that on The Guardian because then The Guardian would own it. Yeah. And so that's why I did that. And so the, the various things, and people used to ask me loads of beauty questions on Twitter, and I hated answering them because only they could see them, and then another hundred people over the next week would ask me the same question. Mm. But then if I tweeted them publicly, that was boring for my friends. So I then started a group on Facebook where I said, you can ask me things and I'll answer publicly here. Mm -hmm. So things kind of happened quite organically. It wasn't really a conscious decision. Yeah. But I enjoy it. You can't not be involved in all of the stuff. Yeah. And again, with both those, it's growing a community and it's growing different forms of communication. So it's you being quite reactive to your readers and to the... Yeah. People. And you have to make it authentically you. Like Snapchat. Come on. I'm too old. Like, <laughs> like there's no way I'm going to do Snapchat. It's too late. Everyone else, everyone who did Snapchat joined ages ago. It would take me too long to build up a following. Everyone on it seems to be nine. <laughs> it's just like, it's not going to happen, and I need to just accept that's not going to happen. Whereas Instagram, I love. Um, so there are, there are some things, I don't do Instagram stories very much. I find it quite annoying, the way that they upload. But And I'm always accidentally posting things of like me in bed, like my chin or whatever. <laughs> So uh, not everything is not everything is for me, um, but the things I enjoy and the things where I feel my readers are tapped into, I, I will try to get involved with. Yeah, which builds a sense of trust. Um, I love events. Events yeah. are my favourite. Yeah. So the personal contact is that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. Um, so that leads on to the next question, which is um, with your Guardian column. It's the only, I think it's the only column I've ever read where you actually, in some instances, deter your readers not only from not buying a particular product, but a whole kind of product group. Like you had an article in the summer, for instance, that was about Aftersun, and it was saying that the kind of joy of Aftersun is more the comfort that you feel you've done something. Fine. But yeah, which is fine, but don't pretend. But it's a body lotion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you might as well use your body lotion. Yeah. And I find that so incredibly refreshing. Um, and and in that, there seems to be a prioritization of kind of building trust with your reader rather than with the brands that you're perhaps pushing or representing or referencing in those articles. Is that something you consciously build, trust with I the mean reader? It, I mean, it's everything. Yeah. It's absolutely everything. I don't really care about any of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I felt, when I started writing that column, um, I said to the editor, um, I will only do it with zero interference, and she agreed straight away. And at that time, I really can't speak for journalists now, 
Um, but at that time, there definitely wasn't any other um, beauty writer who didn't have to scratch backs for advertisers. Mm. And I have never, ever, ever, ever been asked by The Guardian, could you just, could you just yes. mention, because they've bought 40 pages of advertising, whatever, which is what happens on magazines. I've never had to do that. I've never even been asked to do that. And if I was asked, I would leave. Mm. Um, I don't care about the brand side of it. I simply don't care because it is none of my business whether they sell things off the back of my column. Obviously, it's nice for me to hear that readers trust me enough to buy things, but I don't care if they make money or not. I'm there for the reader. Mm -hmm. And um, I am never, ever, ever going to write a column where I recommend a cellulite cream because they simply cannot work. It's absurd. Um, I'm never going to write positively about a bus gel because, come on, <laughs> you know, there are some things I'm just not going to engage in. I'm never, ever, ever going to um, write a column with the assumption that my reader is white, which, mm. frankly, is what everybody else did um, before I started writing my column. Th there was definitely a manifesto. There were definitely things that I said, this isn't good enough, mm -hmm. and it has to change. Yeah. And do you think that The Guardian gave you the freedom to follow that manifesto? Completely. And, and do you think that's because they're a newspaper, or is it that they put their trust in you? In turn of you putting trust in the reader, they put trust in you. There are three things. Uh, one is because they're a newspaper, and newspapers are not um, beholden to beauty and fashion advertisers mm -hmm. the way magazines are, and that's extremely important. Um, so that's the first reason. The second reason is they were completely blinded by the science of it. So they had absolutely no idea what I was talking about, and so they pretty much trusted me. <laughs> they pretty much trusted me to get on with it because they didn't know any better. So it's not like it was a, a political column where somebody on the team could go, well, actually, I think you'll find they had no idea what I was talking about, so they let me get on with it. And thirdly, they just didn't really respect it. Mm. They just didn't really respect it at the beginning. Uh, I think it took them by surprise. Um, when I was offered that job, I found out later that it was between me and another journalist, and the other journalist was going to write it as a spoof. Oh. It was going to be a spoof beauty column. And they went the other way and they gave it to me. But had they done that, as a reader, I would have been furious. Mm. I would have been absolutely furious. And the reason I got the column was because I said the current column, which was by a YouTuber uh, that they'd hired, and I picked it up one day, and she had written about a moisturizer that was benefit-hydrating moisturizer. And she had written, this moisturizer is moisturizing and hydrating. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I read it, and I was like, like I was so angry, just as a punter, just yeah. a reader. And I already wrote for the paper and stuff. And I tweeted and said, what a bag of shit it was, basically. <laughs> and then um, my friend, um, my friend Catelyn, who had a huge following, mm -hmm. replied and said, yes, that page is terrible. And then Kirsty Allsop replied. And quite a few like high-profile women replied to my tweet and said, mm -hmm. it's terrible. And then the editor called me and said, what's your problem with it? And I said, it, it serves nobody, because if you know nothing whatsoever about beauty, it tells you nothing. It doesn't inform you in any way. And if you do know about beauty and you are engaged in beauty, it's taking the piss out of you. Mm -hmm. And so on that basis, it's serving no one. And I can't see why I can't write it to serve both of those audiences, yeah. to inform people who don't know and to entertain and respect the people who do know. Yeah, absolutely, and not presenting it as a patronising subject. And stop assuming that everyone is young, thin, white, 
Absolutely. Well, that was something with limitless cash. Yeah, <laughs> that was something I actually wanted to talk about as well. Um, was the fact that I've noticed in your writings and in your broadcasting, whether it's social commentary or whether it is focused on trends and beauty, um, you do kind of push the idea of diversity, um, even if it's just essentially holding up a flag that there's an issue with an event or with a brand or with a line. Um, you know, from whether it's praising certain American brands for the fact that they do have uh, more diverse lines through to criticizing some of the French heritage brands for sticking to kind of purely Caucasian or tan that no one quite is. The worst, the worst are Japanese brands. Mm -hmm. They're not French anymore. The worst brands are Japanese and Korean brands. They're a yeah. nightmare. Yeah. And is this something, so kind of having that as an issue that you uh, acknowledge in the kind of platform, is that something you've always felt confident in doing or is that something as a result of your kind of growing audience? Well, it's not enough, is it? I'm white and I write a beauty column and it has my face on it. So, so it's not enough. But, but I, I do think that if you're... I think if you're aware that there's an issue, I think if you're aware that you work in an, in an industry that is inherently racist, sometimes mildly, sometimes less so, and that industry exists in a world that is inherently racist, and you don't do or say something, then I think you're actually a racist. Mm. I, th I, like, I think, I mean, that sounds harsh, but I think if you have a platform and you don't say or do something, then you are effectively playing the game, and that makes you a racist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if it's almost like the, it's not, you don't feel it as taking a stand, you feel it as an assumed responsibility, perhaps. I think it's absolutely, I think it's absolutely your responsibility. It's essential. And that might I be- I don't think you can not you say can it, because it. then you're approving of it. Yeah, but then- I don't mean people with no platform, I mean people who yeah. have exposure. Some people are powerless. I mean, I think you can mostly make small changes. But if you are in the national media and you are in a position of privilege and your industry is not serving a vast section of the population, I think you have to say, or you're playing it, you're colluding in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic to use your platform in that way. I think that probably also builds on, again, this trust and community that exists around you, um, which I think might partly build from that point that you're not afraid to share your own opinions, but also because of the diverse range of things that you write on. I think particularly with the pool, um, it can be anything from a breakup to growing anxiety levels and issues with self-esteem. Um, have you kind of consciously used the pool as a platform in which to talk about uh, kind of a range of social issues? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 we sort of alternate. Sometimes it's just something in the paper this week. So a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about Matt Damon and his relentless commenting on the Me Too movement. So that was in the paper. I was absolutely furious about it, so I wrote that. So if something's in the paper, something's happening that I want to comment on, then I'll write that. And then other weeks, I write something more personal, more reflective, um, sometimes things that are more funny, sometimes things that um, relate to just a lunch I've been on with girlfriends where something's come up and I've thought, oh, that's interesting. I like writing about friendships, about relationships a lot. Um, I've got pretty much free reign. I just tell them what I'm writing mm. on a Monday night, Tuesday morning, and then I write it and it comes out on Wednesday. Yeah. So I'm really lucky, but that's down to Sam Baker and Lauren Laverne who own the pool. Um, Sam's been my editor for a really, really long time. She was my editor at Red. She's properly made of good. And, um, and Lauren's one of my best friends. And so, I, so I, trust, I trust the two of them completely. And I think they trust me. So they let me get on with it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Sounds like a supportive environment. Massively. Um, a running theme throughout all your work, um, not just the pieces on the pool, but kind of broadly, I think, is uh, the idea of women's choice and I think also just a straight-talking sense of feminism. Um, I've noticed you saying things like, I really hate the anything that starts with the phrase women should and that idea of a kind of again dictating what a person should should or shouldn't do oh the no gender. makeup movement yeah <laughs> it's just like it's so great that you don't want to wear makeup I, i'm so down with it but stop saying other women should stop wearing makeup just anything that starts with women should i'm out like if you, the moment you say that i'm out yeah, and I think... I can't bear it. This sense that giving a different prescription for what women should do... Yeah, somehow, exactly. Somehow it gives women more freedom. It, it doesn't. You're just telling women what to do again. Yeah. Leave them alone. Absolutely. So that's something that I kind of got really, really uh, empowered or... or uh, Take your makeup by. off to cure cancer. Yeah, I find that offensive as well. I mean, that eventually it makes became me so angry. Yeah, that particular campaign. Eventually, someone got round to setting up a kind of fundraising aspect. Two weeks later. Yes, yeah. but first of all, it was just an opportunity to post a selfie of yourself, which was probably ultimate. Well, and also to bully women into taking exactly. Their makeup off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was to bully, and it was to set a certain standard. I and can't it was bear it. And also this implication that, you know, the most a woman can do yeah. for charity is to yeah. remove her makeup as though this is some kind of ultimate sacrifice yeah. for her. Exactly. I so. can't bear it. <laughs> I can't bear it. It's like, you know, TV presenters who take off their clothes for a charity calendar. Well, it's for charity. There are so many other things yeah. you can do without taking off your clothes for charity. Yeah. Jesus. And the makeup element, it kind of simultaneously patronises women for being interested in self-care and self-presentation. and It also makes positive also judgments about them without exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and also it presents it, as you blood. say, as the only thing a woman can do is to yeah. expose herself to... Yeah to show her weakness. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in that aspect in your writing and the idea of kind of turning beauty on its head as an act of kind of kindness or creativity. Um, and in particular, um, there's a couple of friends in the audience who've had to hear me rant and rave about the idea of red lipstick. And I know it's something you've written about a lot. Um, and I, in my book club, I created a lot recently, um, a piece from your iconic, uh, pretty iconic book about the idea of um, much is made of makeup being about dishonesty and disguise, but red lipstick is kind of the ultimate yeah. feminist statement within beauty. Because yeah. It's a, not uh, about the beholder, it's about the wearer. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in your idea of when beauty transcends, you know, you described earlier on, uh, and I didn't want to leap in there and then, the fact that you say you've never dressed or presented yourself for anyone else. Well, not for men, I not think for probably men, for girls. For girls, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's more uh, seeing beauty um, or style as a kind of self-expression and self-code rather than as a reward system in which someone else is hopefully going to react to in a certain way. Would you feel like, are there, is there anything other than red lipstick that you feel that about? Or is it about a person having their particular momentum, their particular choice? Um, I, de I definitely think red, I think red lipstick is the ultimate, ultimate feminist beauty product. It's making, it, I mean, I've written a whole column about this in the past, about the, 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 the political importance of red. Um, red lipstick really um, pisses off the patriarchy historically. It really massively does. Uh, red lipstick was banned by Parliament um, in Britain many, many hundreds of years ago. Uh, red lipstick is 
um, not pretending. Nobody's lips are bright red. They're simply not. So you're not pretending that you're naturally this way. It's an unapologetic statement. I am just changing the colour of bits of my face, which I think is quite exciting. Um, it comes off on men's faces, which is quite annoying for them. It's like, you know, it's, it, it's purely it's purely about them. It is associated with sex work and um, and with sex generally. There are so there are so many historical connotations with red lipstick that I think it's absolutely marvellous. I, I absolutely love it and it makes me feel, I'm not wearing red today but I very often do wear red, it makes me feel something, it makes me feel really powerful and um, just on a practical level, whatever you wear clothes-wise out of the house in the morning, if you've got a red lipstick in your handbag, which I literally always have, usually probably three, um, whatever comes along, if I put the red lipstick on, I'll be okay, whatever the dress code is, because you're immediately kind of dressed up. So even if I'm wearing jeans or, and sneakers, to be honest, I don't wear trainers and jeans to London, but you know, whatever. Well, even if I'm dressed quite casually, if I put on a red lipstick, I immediately go up the dress code scale and I feel mm -hmm. kind of ready. Yeah, and again, it's kind of the performative element, I would say. So yeah. you've spoken with your object about the transformation that it allowed you to have, and perhaps the same thing could be said of a red lipstick. Yeah, well, it's demanding to be looked at, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's refusing to be invisible. It's not like a nude where you could conceivably just look like that and blend in. When you wear a red lipstick, you are saying, I'm perfectly fine with you looking in my direction, and that's quite a powerful statement in itself. Uh, but there, there are lots of things. Um, there are lots of products that, that, that make me feel good. Perfume's a big one. Um, I like skin to look nice. Um, I think clean hair. Kate Moss says, always clean hair, and you can get away with anything. And I think to a degree that's true. Try to always have clean hair. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there are certain sort of signifiers that you can communicate to the world. I, I walk differently. Mm -hmm. I stand differently. Yeah. Again, though, it's about communication, therefore. So you're using a kind of sartorial and beauty code yeah. just to communicate yourself to your yeah. to your. Yeah, your I feel society. the same about heels. I'm a heels person and, mm -hmm. you know, respect if you're a flat person, but I just don't feel nice in flats. I never have. I'm a very short person. Um, I don't feel myself and I find heels very easy to walk in. Um, and for me, heels are part of that. I would never go to a meeting in flat shoes. Mm -hmm. Never. <laughs> never. And um, people do, and I think they look amazing, but yeah. I could not. So again, it's about personal choice, personal style, and personal definition. So time is absolutely thrown by. So as a kind of closing thought, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of reel us back around to the idea of collecting and collections and, and kind of the importance of objects. So you've spoken from a very personal perspective tonight, um, both about some of the things you've written about, also about particular iconic products, um, but also about your garment. I'd be curious to know, either from a personal or professional perspective, if there was something that you could choose that would go into an archive or a collection, Ooh. what would it be? Something I own. Um, yeah, something you own or something that you see as a kind of, yeah, as an icon in itself. It doesn't have to be something that you've written about. It's a big one to close on. I'm sorry, it's mean. <laughs> um, uh, something that would go into an archive. Um, I think I would just put, um, I put my dressing table, I suppose. Mm. It's my, um, it's my safe space, and it's just full of all sorts of cool stuff. Um, 
So that's a bit of a cheat, isn't it, to put an entire dressing table in? <laughs> um, uh, uh, oh God, single item. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would put in. Um, I would put in a red lipstick. Mm. It's the most I iconic beauty product. That and Chanel Number no. Five. You can't. Those two things. That's beauty, isn't it? See a bottle of Number no. Five. See a red lipstick. That's beauty. Yeah. I think I'm going to be generous and let you have your dressing table too. Thanks, man. You, <laughs> you can combine them, and then Thank that's you. a safe space, but a space of uh, self-expression as well. It was so. a gift from my friend as well, so it means something. To Lovely. Yeah. So it's a space of social interaction and kind of reference as well. Yeah. Perfect. We've covered all bases. Great. Well, thank you so much. That was thank a really interesting you. conversation. Could you all Thanks join me in thanking me. Sally? Mm -hmm.